prescient, profound, and provocative, Othello remains one of Shakespeare's most enduring and controversial plays, now in a time of political uncertainty, rising populism, and social fracture, it's been reinvented again. Welcome to The Othello Project. The Othello Project is an artistic response to the Shakespeare at Tobacco Factory and English Touring Theatre's new production of Othello, directed by Richard Twyman, which comes to London's Wilton's Music Hall from 16th May to 3rd June. The project is generously supported by Amal, an initiative of the Said Foundation. I'm your host, journalist, Abdul Rahman Malik. I'm also the creative advisor to the production. Every week we're exploring some of the powerful themes, issues, and fault lines that Othello raises. This week's episode picks up where we left off with director Richard Twyman and historian and critic Jerry Broughton. Both spoke about the idea of the Moor in Othello, at once a dangerous and romantic figure, othered by religion, race, and empire. This week, we go inside the soul of the Moor and talk with actor Abraham Popola about what it takes to reinterpret an already incredibly complex and polarizing character. Abraham is a graduate of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, but he's also an activist and someone whose own life has taught him to constantly question his identity. We began, though, with a photograph of a desperate man whose hands are raised in prayer. Abraham, we first met um, sort of in the early days of, of thinking through what Othello uh, would look like. But I had actually been introduced to you a little bit earlier, um, not by meeting you, but through a photograph. And Richard had sent me the, the the photographs that eventually were used for um, the promotional material for, for, for Othello, which was a picture of you uh, raising your hands in supplication yeah. and in prayer that to me was clearly Muslim prayer mm. um, in the way that, that we raise our hands. And I've seen our, you know, Muslims raise their hands all my life. And what really struck me about that picture was not just the action, but the intensity that I felt that you brought to that moment. I didn't even met you yet, but I knew that I was going to be meeting someone of incredible intensity and actually gravitas. And I have to say, I wasn't disappointed at all. <laughs> I mean, when did you realize that this was going to be even more different in terms of in terms of your previous experiences with with Othello when did that kind of the penny drop to say I'm part of something that's really almost revolutionary when it when it comes to the interpretation of this play yeah so well the first time I I knew that before I even knew I was going to be Othello in the sense of um I'd worked at I'd worked with Richard on a very short play at the Royal Court um and uh at the end of the run, he asked me, he said to me he had an idea about a play he wanted to talk to, talk to me about. He spoke to me about it. And obviously I'm sort of, this is my first ever sort of, I mean, it's my, my sort of professional de- debut was sort of Othello, but this is the first time I'd sort of been paid to act. And, and Richie gave me my first job in, in that respect. Um, so I was sort of like wide-eyed, like this is amazing just to be around these people, be at the Royal Court with all these actors who'd had professional careers for a long time. So I was even surprised he came to ask me about 
what I thought about this thing was like he's got an idea for Othello and he was like he's pondering it and he's never seen an Othello which focuses on his religion in the in his Islamic religion and I sort of thought huh that's so true and he asked me am I familiar with Othello I'm like yes I am (laughs) I'm very familiar with Othello um I've loved that play for a long time I've studied it and I've played the character um so we had a conversation and I was like yeah you're absolutely right um in all the times I've studied the text or read the text or even played the part, I'd never actually quite realised, oh, of course, this this man is a Muslim or has been a Muslim. There's some Muslim identity there, whether that's something that he's, he's rejected or he's forgotten, there was Muslim um, heritage within within Othello. So from that moment when I saw how excited he was and also he was very coy, but he was very, um, you know, um, particular about making sure that he doesn't didn't want anyone to know that that was the approach of Othello he wanted to he wanted to take because of course you know everyone's trying to put rightly so you know what wh- why are we putting Othello on today why are we putting as you like it on today what's the angle we're going at and he was like actually he's never seen this angle before um I guess it's a bit crude to call it an angle do you know what I mean I think it's very truthful actually when we when we go into the text actually it's actually it's not an angle actually it's, it's the actual play and perhaps actually the angle has been how we've been playing it for the last 500 years is actually making it ignoring that um, so from then I was like if this play gets put on if he does do this Othello it's gonna go down actually so then so when I found out that he when I got the audition to do it and then when I got the part I think from then I knew okay this is gonna be different this is gonna be something else how did you begin to prepare for it so really just reading it reading it and reading it and reading the play he also then put me in touch with this book called Leo the African by Amin Malouf. Yes, by and, he, and Richard was, and I have spoken about that yes, that, that book as as we were as he had involved me in some yes. of that thinking process. And, and I and I know you brought that book in yes. with you the first time we met. Yes, and it's a brilliant book. Um, so he put me in touch with that book. So I bought the book straight away, and it was um a revelation. It really opened my eyes to the history and the culture of what someone like Othello may have been through. So, 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 for our listeners, yeah. uh, Amin Malouf essentially tells the story, the the real story. He fictionalizes uh, the 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 real life story of the man who became to Hassan al Wazan, who became known as as Leo the African or Leo Africanus. Mm-hmm. Who had this incredible journey mm. of, of 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 slavery, eventual conversion, and ended up in Rome mm. as one of the servants to to the to the Pope, mm. and he came from a scholarly family. He came from uh, a family of learning and of and of social and political power, and ended up as a slave and ended up in the court of the the Pope, and eventually um, converted back to Islam and yeah. returned. To return to Africa, yeah. and and it's it's a it's just this magnificent story. But but I mean, Malouf also takes us into the internal life of Leo the African. It yeah. isn't just what's happening to him, but it, what's happening in his heart and mm. in his in his uh, in his in his mind. And, and you're so right that what a connection to Othello that amazing. is. Amazing for a lot of it. Like I could say, ninety percent of what that character went through, I could see Othello have gone gone going through um, himself. So it was, it was a massive revelation and a massive help in terms of my preparation before the play started. You are listening to The Othello Project, created by English Touring Theatre with support from Amal, a project of the Said Foundation. Amal provides opportunities for people in Britain, regardless of their faith or beliefs, to come together and explore the rich diversity of Muslim cultures and arts. To find out more about the work of Amal, visit 
amal.org.uk. That's amal.org.uk. Now back to the podcast. The, it, but but I think that it, you know we all carry our histories with us, isn't it? Into 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 whatever we do, but I th- I think your personal history is absolutely fascinating in terms of Othello because you come from a very unique background. Mm-hmm. I, can 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 you can you talk us through that? Because when I when when you first talk to me about that in in a way it made the hair stand up uh, back of back of my head in, <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the sense that here is an actor who doesn't mere who isn't merely going to play Othello mm. this is someone who is whose own personal life already embodies the fault lines mm. that 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 Othello as a character and as a play is addressing yeah i think wasn't really to have a conversation with you that I really start to see how particular it was. And I guess for me, I perhaps I know, because it's me, other people with similar backgrounds, so I didn't see it as so significant. But in terms of the play, it is very significant. So um, I um, I have an, of Nigerian heritage. Um, my father is from Lagos. My mother is from Delta State. And my mother comes from a Catholic background. So her, my mother's mother converted to... My mother's grandmother converted to Christianity from a traditional sort of um, uh, religion, indigenous religion. This is probably a religion that existed before Nigeria existed. So as far as my mum's memory goes, she's been Catholic. She has, she has a, she had a sister who passed, unfortunately, who was a reverend sister. She's got very much Catholic. Um, and I grew up in, in that sense in a Catholic side. But I have a father one, I'm from Lagos who grew up in a Muslim background and all his family is all Muslim. Um, so my I didn't grow up with my father, wasn't around too much when we were younger. So I lent myself more to the Catholic side, but I was christened or my, my birth and my first name was Ibrahim. That's my name, which um, when I'd go around on the street, you know, I didn't really go to the mosque when I was young, but people would call me Ibrahim and, you know, say Salam Alaikum, you know, all those things to me. And I started to realise what that was. And sometimes my mum would play up the fact that my name was Ibrahim when she was talking to people who who were Muslim, you know, sometimes like if in a market, for example, it's like, yeah, my son's name is Ibrahim, you know, give us a discount, do you know what I mean? That sort of thing. Um, and, um, and because of my Catholic heritage, you know, that's the place I was going to, I was going to, well, I've, I've been through many different churches growing up, but Catholic, Catholic, um, Catholicism was the one I sort of landed at um, uh, for the m- most part. But as a result of that, I went to a Catholic school. I went to a church of England primary school, then I went to a Catholic um, secondary school. And when I got to that secondary school, I made the choice to start being referred to as Abraham, um, which is the Christian version of the same biblical uh, character, the, um, the character in the Quran. So... I didn't, I mean, I was too young to really consciously know why I was doing it, but now I know why. I know why actually it was because of- Why, why, why did you? Really, xenophobia. I mean, if I put it as, as, as clearly as that, do you know what I mean? I think the thing of knowing actually like, my name, Sonny Moore Weston, allowed me to fit in more. Um, me being called Ibrahim, I felt just a, a little bit isolated from other people who were called John or Mark or Ezekiel or Jacob. Um, I found that the Ibrahim, that, was something that I felt sort of isolated in that sense. Um, and I didn't really consciously know this, but I felt it subconsciously. So when I would go to my Catholic church, you know, even the, the people in that church would call me Abraham anyway. 
Um, so when I was confirmed, um, during confirmation, you can uh, take on a name for your confirmation. So my brother, his, his name is um, Yusuf, as his birth name, but he's now known as Joseph. Um, so that's sort of what I went through as well from age 11. So since then, so now age 25, I've been known as Abraham longer than I've been known as Ibrahim. But as again, interesting learning about why I made that choice and now also doing this play, there's a part of me that's questioning her. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll go back to Ibrahim. I wonder, do you know what I mean? But there's a consequence to that. There is a consequence, you know, how people will see you just by your name. I know that I do believe that my life has been made slightly easier by my by me being called Abraham in certain contexts as opposed to Ibrahim. To, to, to what extent in that process of, of becoming yourself mm. was was race and racism important or how, how did it figure in your in your experiences growing up I, I, f- I found that you know my the first time I was really really made aware of racism you know you ha- you grow up sometimes and your mum will say stuff to you like you know be careful you know when so for example I I grew up you know in Hackney and um you know, a lot of kids my age would get to wear like tracksuit bottoms and hoodies because that's what kids feel comfortable in. It looks cool. You can run around, you can jump and and things like that. But my mum was always wary. She didn't ever want me to wear hoodies or tracksuits because she knew what I didn't know that I would be profiled as a result of that, even from a young age, you know. The fact I'm a little black boy running around in a hoodie, I could be misidentified. I could, I could fall into the wrong crowd or I could be um, targeted by whether it's the police or other like gangs or some stuff like that. So from that age, I started to realize some, there's something not right. There's something about my blackness or my appearance or my existence that means that I have to move in a way that's different to other people. So my first experience of racism, I was 14 and I went to Pontins in Wales with my cousin, my aunt and my uncle. Very excited to go to Pontins. And um, there was like a like an adventure park sort of thing. And there was this thing where like a little zip wire where you'd go to the top of a platform, hang on the zip wire and it'll, it'll go, just, you'll, you'll fly, fly down. It's like, wee, yay. Um, so we were waiting in line as all the kids were going up there. I waited my turn. I got, there, I got up there and then I was pushed off of the platform by uh, a boy who was older than me, slightly older than me, but um, not by too much. And he shouted down to me, um, you can't go in it. We don't like coloreds here. And I was like, I had no idea what that meant. I was like, what the hell? I just, I was upset that I got pushed off. I was actually even really upset. That I didn't even get to go on the thing because I was like, so excited to go on it. Um, so went back and it actually interesting. This was the day that um, England beat Germany 5-1. Um, I remember that very clearly. Um, and I somehow, so maybe I wasn't 14. Maybe I was younger. Um, so I went back to Ponson and I told my aunt, and uncle what had happened and I could tell that they understood something more than I understood but yeah from that moment on I started to realise there's people who are different from me who don't like the fact that I look the way I am or that I have that I exist the way I exist and that started to then sort of make sense of stuff my mum would say and then it started to manifest in different things you know then I started to realise I was being profiled in different places um, I was being um, discriminated upon in, in, in different um, situations that I did in some cases have to work harder than perhaps my white equivalent would have to in certain situations. Did you feel that there was a point in your life where you had kind of a political o- uh, awakening? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, because yeah. because it's it's sort I I mm. having gotten to know you over the last 
few months, mm. uh, I, there's there's an astute political animal, uh, you know, in you, and I and, and we're all political animals in a way. Mm. But 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 I I know you're astute, and you're 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 to use our contemporary term, you're 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 woke. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, interesting. You asked me that's great. That's a great question to ask. So I don't know when it happened, but I know the the moment I realized it when I look back. So was we're doing. What I don't know what you can call it. It was African studies, African American studies, Black studies. My history. I'm doing history. You know, you pick three um, subjects to do, in along with the core subjects you have to do in secondary school for your uh, your GCSEs. So I'm in year ten now, and we're learning about. We just finished learning about the civil rights, or we're about to learn about civil rights. We're learning now about the slave trade. And um, a teacher who I loved, this guy called Mr. Neville, who I loved him. He was so cool and young and sort of hip. Um, he was teaching us about the slave trade and a white, a white man and uh, he was teaching us about slave trade and I said at some point um, why are you calling them slaves? And he was like that's what they were I was like they're not slaves He's like yeah they are I'm like no they're not slaves they're victims like they're victims like they're not actually slaves that's not who they are they had names they had um, families like they were enslaved but they were not slaves actually Um I remember feeling so isolated in that class in that moment, but I, I felt whatever, maybe whether it was anger, whether it was passion, I felt I was also very right. I couldn't see how they, they he couldn't understand what I was saying. And there was another point as well that I started to realise how come, I started to question even what the word is black, black means, you know what I mean? There's a point where it's like, why do you keep calling these these people black? Why do you call me black? I'm actually not black. I'm actually, I look at my skin, I'm actually brown. So it's just sort of like question those things, like starting to say things don't actually make sense, actually. You know what I mean? You call one group of people black based on their skin color, but they're not actually black. Another group of people white based on their skin color, but they're not actually white. Another group of people called Asians, not based on their skin color, but based on the region where they were. Another people called Jewish based on their religion. And that's all race. So those sort of things start to start to like not make sense. And I think from then, I think, I don't know, yeah, 10, maybe you're 14, 15, is when I started to, um, in some way, shape or form, try to gain some knowledge, which I wasn't receiving in, in school. So at that young age, I think it was more like, um, fortunate enough to like listen to rap music. So I remember my first, the first person I really started to listen to was a, a rapper called Lupe Fiasco, which I learned later on, his, um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a Muslim. Um, I think his name is Was- Wasulu Jacko and um, I started to listen to him and he I got a lot of pointers in like where to find certain knowledge about certain things about didn't, that didn't make sense but yeah in terms of the question like I looking back it was probably then that was my first real moment of like political awakeness it's, it's, it's really yeah. interesting because I think so many of us in our own context have similar experiences mm-hmm. where we get into the classroom and we recognize that are that the educational system, the curriculum, the books we're reading, the history being taught is so incomplete mm. and is using a language mm. that that alienates us or that we feel alienated from that we then have to find our own pathways of, yeah. of education. And I think for, for for me in the early nineties it was it was it was hip hop and it was yeah. reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. Yes. Um yeah. but but it, it's it's so interesting that that in a way we have to forge our own pathway of learning mm-hmm. because no one's going to provide it right. for us. Exactly, yeah. and and in a way that's also really empowering. Yes, absolutely. Taking responsibility actually for something that you know, unfortunately, you not have you don't have the access to it on your own. But when you take responsibility for it, then you sort of have more ownership of it, and also have the ability then to discern 
even in the things you're learning, you know, what's what's right and what's not. Um, but at the same time, the flip side is, you know, I still get annoyed that actually I know more about the Cold War and, 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 and Second World War than I do know about Nigeria. As much as I've tried and I've been doing as much as I can in my own personal research and and to and learning of that but still my knowledge of that is greater because that's that's something that was um instilled in me throughout all of my um education so there is that imbalance which is sort of unfair not to say it's not important to know about the second world war but i'll tell you a, a, just a quick story about this actually where it really it really did um came to a head so when i was at rada uh, in my first year of rada i'm doing my first ever like sort of project where we we uh put, do a play it's sort of an in-house thing. We're doing a play. This is the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. And um, this play is called The Accrington Powers. And it's a play set during the First World War, I believe it is. The First World War. Um, where it's a lovely story of a group of um, soldiers, um, mostly young men from Accrington, which is um, up north, like sort of Lancashire near Manchester. And... Um, just these boys who go to war and they die, basically. But the story is about how their personalities and how how... How how fucked the war is, and how you know the people that left behind are left to you know miss these lovely characters that we get to know. During our training, before we do this thing, we learn about the, the Stanislavski method, you know, of of you know basically knowing you know who is your character, answering these fundamental questions: who are the character, where were they born, where are they from, why they're here, what do they want? And I realized, as a black person in this play. I can't answer these questions the same way as my white people, the white people in this play can, do you know what I mean? I can't actually do that because of my existence. I either have to do one thing, I have to pretend that my skin is not what it is and that they can't see my skin as what it is, or I have to somehow warp history to make me fit into this narrative. So what I found was, and then, and then we did the research about how the First World War started and things like that. Now, I don't want to get into it, I don't, I know I'm, not, I'm not an expert on it, but I know one thing for sure is that Belgium was a big part of it. You know, Germany, infringed on Belgium um, and there was a, the, the rhetoric was like you know little Belgium cannot be violated in this way so you know Great Britain are going are going to go and, and run in and, and, and save save Belgium and that sort of was part of the you know the the, the dominoes the domino effect of what happened and it caused the World War the First World War to happen but Belgium and this time in history was fucking up <laughs> large parts of Africa do you know what I mean places where people looked like me so that was a massive disconnect that I, I found as well, was just that thing of like, well, actually, this doesn't really make any sense. You know what I mean? I can't do the thing that you can do. I can't, if I if I have to either deny my history or warp it to, to fit into this play. Um, well, what, what was the response? Well, I had to, well, I had to deal with it myself. Right. I had to deal with it myself and I dealt with myself because it was a learning exercise. You know what I mean? It wasn't in front of like um, a, um, an audience. It was an, an exercise to learn, deal with character. That was what it was. It was a, a well-mannered, um, thing that did serve me well in my acting, in my acting technique to learn how to be this, this certain character. But I started to realize actually that's really unfair or unbalanced actually that as, as a character, as, as an actor who has a different, um, that is black, um, I can't portray this character using the same methods that you can use because actually there's a there's a disconnect actually there's a there's a there's a conflict of interest in terms of how I'd like to approach this character. And you became a bit of a shit disturber at Rada. Uh, well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you yeah. took that political consciousness that you had been developing for years mm. into your into your work at the at, at the royal at, at the royal academy. And yeah. I mean, did you move from secondary school and college directly into Rada? No, or so did you go to university? I first, went to university or? first. Okay. I went to university first. I did English literature. 
I did that for three years, though I didn't complete my um, course. Um, I sort of left to, to to apply for drama school, but I had done some literature and I was doing pretty well before I left. Um, so you get to RADA. Yes. You're confronted with these kinds of yeah. dilemmas. Mm. Um, but I know you get active there. Tell, tell me a little bit about your, 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 your activism there and, and, and the ways in which you were, I guess, pushing back against uh, against some of these barriers. Yeah, so, you know, before I, before I went to run, I'm, I'm very aware, as I knew from a young age, and as I got older, I realized I know I want to act. Whether I, I'm going to be able to act, I don't know, but I know I want to. So when it became more and more possible for me to get to that place, I started to realize, okay, this world that I want to go into is very unequal in terms of, you know, representation, um, characters on television, um, how people like me are portrayed, how people of colour are portrayed, how women are portrayed. These sort of things are like very um, unequal. Um, so in terms of my own ex- experience, and, and I started to see there's problems, you know. Um, and I started also, I think the first thing was actually came out of a fear of like, I might go to, to drama school. So basically you go to, you go to run, there's like pictures of ex-students everywhere. And I'm sure it's, it's definitely true of ex-white students too. But as a black student, I was looking at people who looked like me. And sometimes I'd see people and it looked like, for me, it looked like ghosts who had gone to this a massive institution, but disappeared. Um, and I was like, that's so interesting. How does that happen? And I was thinking, well, you know what? If I leave drama school, as good as I am, the fact of the matter is there just aren't as many roles out there for me or there aren't as many things being written for me or if there's things that are being written for me, they're not getting put on because, because of white supremacy, the world we live in. Um, so I was very aware that, I, I think it came first out of fear, like I don't wanna go for this drama school and like not be able to like get a good agent or or even, or, or, or do a play that allows me to um, act as fully as another character might, another uh, actor might be able to. So then I started wondering, so then I started being hit again with the sort of, what was the norm there was sort of the very Eurocentric approach to, to the teaching of acting, do you know what I mean? Like the accents that we would learn in depth and in a lot of detail, we'll learn, we'll learn, we'll learn RP for long swathes of time compared to like one week of Emily or one week of um, African, Af- AAV, do you know what I mean? African-American vernacular English or, um, you know, the first weeks of, you know, uh, and again, all of these things, I could see in the moment the value of them, but also the imbalance actually of, you know, what it's like for someone like me having to go in and like, you know, learn period dancing for, 12 weeks at a time but you know the the equivalent is not happening in terms of learning a dance where I'm perhaps more um, I'm, I'm perhaps more uh, easy I'm, I can lend myself easier to it because of my culture where my, my background is so um, the the combination of your training is the, the third year where you do public shows or the public come and see you the industry come and see you and I was very aware that there was many plays that were all white plays were all the characters were white and there was the odd play where there was well not the odd way there's and then, and then there's plays where there's like uh, the odd black character in it but it's still a play that happens to have black people in it, as opposed to like this is a play that f- f- that centers on people of color and i think that was the thing i was like actually that's really unfair i would like to be able to to participate in a play where i have the same experience that these 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 other students are having where they can be in a play that isn't about race that just happens to be everyone in that play happens to be black. I, I want to have that, and I want. I also dream of a time where in 
in the world we live in that that's something that we go to I can go to the theatre and I can go down on, I can go on the underground and see adverts of plays and I go to see the theatre and everyone's black and it's not a thing like this is an all black play it just happened to be a play where all the people are black um, and I really wanted that I really wanted that and I, and I and I tried to express you know all the all the benefits that I would have do you know what I mean it would mean that you know first of all to have an experience that is rare second of all that you'd be able to see these characters these actors not just as black because everyone is black you can't describe one character as the black character in that play you sort of see all of them are who they are um, a diverse or more diverse in storytelling as opposed to being the tool in someone else's story being the actual engine of the story so those are the sort of things that led me to start to think okay well you know you know having meetings and sort of trying to figure out showing people this, this, the statistics of what it's like for black actors in in the in the in the UK um did it get anywhere did you get anywhere with the, with 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 with, with with making that case, were you able to make a convincing I think case? If, I think eventually I was. I think initially, you know, understandably, I was met with resistance because you know it's that thing of like, we're we're doing good, man. We're at Rada. Do you know what I mean? And I, I think I was more like, yeah, no, but what if you're someone who just wants to come and act and don't want you don't want a freedom fight? What if you just want to come to Rada and just act and just go and not have to worry about what plays you're in? Who's looking out for you in that situation? Um, so eventually I was able to get them. People started to see what the, the things I was talking about. And like, there was also people, you know, staff members who also understood what I was saying and sort of were very supportive and, and were listening. Um, but also I mean, a big part of the problem with these things is like not actually people who are resistant to it, but people who are unaware, but they've got the power to change it. If you have the power to change something, but you don't know what should be changed, it's not going to change actually. Um, but yeah, eventually did get somewhere. And actually like at the end of my final year, there was... And, and not that an all black play had never been on at Rada before but there was one at the end of my year and there was another one just just gone this year and what, was, what was the one uh, during your, your um, final a year a play called Bricks and Pieces which was a commission with, in a, with written by an amazing writer called Charlene James who'd written Cutting It that was another rural court on the Young Vic and um, she wrote the play especially spe- for us uh, at Rada and was directed by the artistic director of Theatre for Hoodsy, Natalie Ibu. And that went that went that, that went down great. It was a, an amazing and amazing thing to be part of. And it was a play that didn't center nor ignore blackness. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And, and that was all it was perfect. You see, that's that's one part of the battle that's um, being fought. There's something about being the protagonist mm. and recognizing the power of being a protagonist. Mm. And when you're not the protagonist in a story, um, that th- that's a hole. That's a mm-hmm. big gaping mm-hmm. hole. Because in a way, it's like your agency mm-hmm. is not recognized. No. Your agency is not valued. Um, and your agency actually disappears mm. because it's not even present. Mm. Which, fast forward to Othello, mm presents a, a a powerful moment, but also an interesting problematic for you as an actor. Yeah. You are now the protagonist mm. of one of the greatest plays, arguably of all time. Mm. And now you're also acting in a production which is reinterpreting the play in some ways radically, or looking at it from another perspective, like you said, is reinterpreting the play rightly. How did it feel now to be the protagonist? And how do you prepare to be Othello? How do you how do you get into that space? The text that Shakespeare writes is rich, full, so layered. 
So I think it's a lot of like looking into, I mean, after doing the work of like, who is Othello, where is he from? And talking through the relevant cast members who might work with you in that way. Um, then it becomes about learning, you know, what what's actually being said? What's the, what are the reasons? What are the motivations for each scene that Othello is in? What's happening in his state of mind is happening, you know, and, wh- and what that's like, Where's where have I s- suffered or gone through an extreme experience? Whether that's like the like elation of love to like, you know, real despair of loss, jealousy, anger. Um, so once that's all done, you know what I mean, in terms of figuring out what that is, I think then it's really just... Um, doing it really I guess I mean in terms of like going on you know before you go on the stage you sort of done this work and you sort of feel like you've got a good shape or a shape that will stick while you discover the nuances that are of course still still within it how did knowing how did the interpretation that that this production does knowing that Othello is secretly a Muslim mm. hiding it from his Venetian superiors um how does that begin to play with the way in which you're interpreting text? I mean, yeah. what's that? What's the process, active process you're going through as you're reading, reading, reading the text in terms of incorporating that? Yeah, I think it, it lent itself, to, lent itself to it very nicely, and it was a, it was a massive freedom actually, because I think actually Othello, whether you in our in an interpretation were saying, yeah, this is a this is a Muslim who's practicing his religion in secret, but even if you were, as in other productions, you you don't you say that he's he's converted to Christianity, he's fully is a Christian. This is a man who's definitely hiding his blackness. He is. Do you know what I mean? This is a man who's uh, been taken into Venetian society, and he's having to work in a. He's working under duress, whether you like it or not, and whether he's. If you play him as someone who's very successful as that and accomplished, and maybe he's an actor who's twice my age, or or even even more older. Do you know what I mean? He someone who has achieved a, a, um, a greatness in that thing, it's still, he's still not being able to be himself. So in the sense of being able to say, well, actually, no, fact, in our production, he is a Muslim and he's hiding it, meant that all the little nuances in the text, I was able to really um, question every single word he said, knowing actually, if deep down, this is what he feels, this is his, his love of Allah is 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 something that he's having to hide. Every word he says is is, is coming through that. Every um every tribulation he faces, every trial he faces is under is is through that that prism of his religion and how he has to hide it and why he has to hide it. Um and the why he has to hide it is also very interesting because of the words he would have to use in, in, in front of different people. How he speaks in front of Desdemona is very different to how he speaks in front of Iago is very different to how he speaks in front of the Senate. Um so and again, then the the then in terms of even the plot, you know, knowing that this is a man who's a Muslim who's being employed by Christians to fight other Muslims, that in itself is just such a an amazing, amazing a mindfuck. And but it's real. Again, it's real. It, again, back to my example of the Accrington Pals, for example. Do you know what I mean? There were black soldiers. There were um, Asian soldiers who were fighting for the British Empire for an empire who's colonized you. That that contradiction exists. So um, it was a joy to be able to see that in, in all the lines and all the text that where those where that story could pop out or where the story already was there and I was able to uncover it because of given, being given the freedom using our approach um, to find it out. The, 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 the play opens with a new scene, doesn't it? A scene where, where, where Othello and, and Desdemona um, invoke... Uh, Arabic Islamic supplications as they uh, 
affirm their marriage. Yeah. Um, I have a particular relationship that mm-hmm. with that scene, but you know, I, I have to say, a I've, 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 I saw it in rehearsal and, and dress rehearsal. Um, you played that scene with a great deal of, of tenderness. And I would say passion, but but not merely passion in the romantic sense of passion. Although yeah, you and Nora are amazing together on on stage, but a different passion, a spiritual passion. And it's interesting for me as as an observer of this particular production to see the moments where you allowed Othello to demonstrate authentic passion. And then those moments in the play when you're hiding it. Mm-hmm. Because when you're hiding it, I feel the tension of you hiding it, mm-hmm. of you managing it, of you containing it. And that tension you're able to hold throughout the course of the entire play. And for me as an observer, that was stunning to watch. And I just want to know how you did it. <laughs> you know, how do you hold that tension because Othello is a tense play, mm. but you hold that tension right up until that the end moment, yeah. you know, and 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 it must be hard work, man, holding it together every night. I mean, I mm. for, at least from my point of yeah. view, yeah, I think maybe um, you're a natural and it's not, <laughs> but but how do you do it? Well, I think you got first of all, like, in terms of like the acting of it, like it's it's made easy when you're working with brilliant actors alongside you, do you know what I mean? And then when you have a brilliant director and everyone works together as they're working together, honestly, it really is like, you've been given a structure which allows you to play in it. Um, so, you know, it's a real joy actually to, to find and really see, to risk, you know, how much how much can I hold in? How much can I gain? How much love can I keep inside of me or passion can I keep inside of me that then I have to stop from coming out? then I have to hide or then I have to lose. And um, it's exciting because you've, you've got a structure where people, you know, everyone around you understands what they're saying, understands why we're doing this play and what it's for. So in that sense, it's like, you know, the work that had to be done has was been, has had been done before the play started actually. So all of that stuff is like rehearsal, rehearsal. And then of course, every time you go up, it's easier the next show because I'm learning show by show. But in terms of the, the strain, actually, I find the strain is, is there's a psychological strain that I found that I didn't really anticipate with this, and as much as I thought it would be in this play. And I think, again, it's probably down to, you know, me. I can't say that all black men who play, play Othello will go through what I've gone through. But I know for me, there has been a psychological strain in a sense of, um, you know, going through, you know, whatever my method my method is or whatever so I think there's a, there's a certain part of me that goes through what that character goes through again I've never killed my wife so I can't go it through in that sense but I have gone through paranoia because of not w- wondering what it's like being you know one of the few black faces in a white in a white space or or, or gone through um, you know thoughts of self-loathing because of internalising you know racist thoughts um, so those sort of things are, are real and you know I'm lucky enough to be able to be around loving people my whole life and to read certain things and to experience certain things to allow me to sort of deal with that but it's by no means gone away from my, my psychology it's definitely there whether it's dormant or, or, or recessive but it's, it's there in some way shape or form so when you're doing a play which takes it and blows it up on a big scale you know it's that thing of getting like I can talk about you know um, as an actor I don't want to see black people doing stereotypical roles I don't want to see that but in this play you know Othello 
becomes savage. He kills out of rage and anger. He is beguiled by a white man and then pretty much sentenced to death, <laughs> you know. Um, so all of those tra traumatic, traumatic things happen. Do you know what I mean? It's the same way, you know, some people, you know, I, I myself is sometimes I can watch it. I can watch 12 Years a Slave one day, but for the most part, I can't watch it another day because it's like, that's really hard to watch. So to go through it psychologically, it does, it does do something for you. And then another aspect of what I found difficult was actually part of the joy of being able to play in front of an audience is there. But then sometimes when you see an audience, it's like there's no black faces in that audience. It's terrifying because, you know, it makes it very real. You know, actually, it's that actually there's no one in this audience that I know for a fact feels how I feel. Do, do, do you fear that they won't get it? There's of course, I think that, of course that is a fear. And I think it's that fear that Othello would have in that moment. So when Othello is talking to the Senate, trying to convince them, I didn't use witchcraft to um, to take Brabantio's door. It was love. He's talking to a, gr a, a group of rich white men who employ him as a weapon. So he must know in that moment that they aren't likely, they don't want to agree with me. Do you know what I mean? I have to really win them over. So when, you know, in those amazing scenes when Othello can use the audience as the Senate and um, include the audience as part of the people he's trying to convince, when I look out and I see an audience, a sea of white faces, in the moment as Othello, it's terrifying because it's extra work, I feel, because if I see a black face, I know there's a high chance that you've gone through what I'm going through now. That so someone's you know, going to get it. That someone's going to get it. So that you know what it's like to be right here. So just to see you look back at me, I can know, you know what I'm going through right now. So it gives me strength. But when it's like a room full of all white faces, not you know, not all the time. You know, sometimes you get the occasional um, audience member who's so enthralled with the speech, they smile at you. So you know they get it. That gives you strength. But sometimes, you know, on some occasions, all different audiences are different. Sometimes the audience are really in tune and listening. So they'll give you, they give you nothing. They're like, okay, tell me, tell me, tell me about how you wooed Desdemona. So then it's like, okay, I'm not getting any help from you. So I have to try extra hard. I really am alone. So I was, I did feel, as Othello would feel, a massive sense of isolation, actually, in doing this play. Um, that I am, I'm lucky enough that I have like great cast members and, um, uh, and a great director who understands that I could talk to them, talk to them about these things. But also, again, there's also part of me that knows actually, or suspects you really won't get it as much as I think you would get it if you'd gone through what I'd gone through in my actual life. Is there is there a scene um, in the play that was that you feel that was that was the most difficult for you? Is was there a scene that that every night you kind of didn't look forward to or you kind of met with trepidation? I always wonder because there's so many scenes in Othello yeah. which are which are mm. difficult and and challenging and. And I wonder you playing the character. Is there one that that every night you were like, okay, we're coming up to it. I gotta, yeah, yeah. I gotta, I gotta get ready for it, but it's, yeah. because it's going to be hard and it never gets yeah. easier. Yeah, I think um, you know, the hope is you know, you know, on your on your best day is to be able to just be in the moment every time and not know what's happening next. Of course, but when you know the cost of certain things, sometimes you know, as an actor, you also are you know, self aware. So you're trying to you're sort of letting the the ship go on autopilot and be instinctive and in a moment but at the same time you're ready to step in at any moment when it doesn't go quite according to plan so because of that you will know what's going to happen next so yeah definitely sometimes there are moments and it changes sometimes time but I think the moment that I sometimes am the most uh, have trepidation about or sometimes anxious about is, is um, at 3 scene 3 the moment where Iago plants the seed of jealousy in a, in a, in a fellow's mind and um, I was reading or listening to like a, a podcast or like a YouTube video of um, Hugh Corsi talking about it and talking about how there's, a, I don't know the exact number, but there's only a certain amount of lines bef 
between Othello saying, excellent wretch, perdition catch my soul, but I do love thee, and when I love thee not, chaos is come again, to when he says, arise black vengeance, to when he decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill, I'm going to kill Desdemona, damn her, damn her lewd minx, go with me apart, I will um, retire to find some way to kill Desdemona. There's not that much, there's not that much. So sometimes you find, you know, as Abraham the, as someone who's critical, you know, you know, and and very, um, I'm very uh, precious about, you know, how people like myself are being portrayed. There's a fear of like, is that realistic? Is that is that is that racist? <laughs> Actually, to have a man flip on his head so much so that in one sense he's in total love, and in the other sense he's gone, I'm gonna kill her tonight. And you know, for the most part, you know, what I mean, I don't think it is. I think all the way we're doing it, it's not. But I also think it's on the line. It definitely is on the line. And sometimes it's so delicate that scene. Do you know, what I mean, how we both, uh, both um, um, Iago played by Mark Lockyer, and I approach it. It's very important to make sure that it doesn't fall into what it easily can because it's already because th- there's the actually a double bind there, isn't it? Mm. It's it's one is that it could be perceived as a savage black man. Mm-hmm. And then when you overlay religion on top mm-hmm. of it, exactly. it's the it's the savage, patriarchal, barbaric, extreme Muslim, Muslim. Uh, who hates the Christian and the other and women and society. And is prone to honor killing and, and, and those sort of things, you know. So that yeah. that's definitely all and it's all on there. That's all um so um three three is like the it's like putting all your all your chips on the table and seeing where the roulette spins. Um, what what it, what it lands on because it, it could you could we could fall off one night and really get it wrong and I think for the most part you know and again that's the other part is you know looking at the audience and not and seeing that for the most part in terms of race and religion we aren't preaching to the converted in terms of knowing what it's like to be othered we might be preaching to the converted in the sense of like they're liberal and they don't believe that racism is right and don't believe xenophobia is right um, but. In terms of like, at the very least, I know one thing I want to display to this, be able to make people feel or be able to empathize with what it's like to be othered. They might not know in this sense, as far as I can see from the open eyes, you know what I mean? As far as I can judge. So in that sense, you've got to be, we're, got to be so careful again, not to push out those, that, that message that this is what, this, this is what is actually happening. Because what actually is happening is, is a man who is, is prone to violence, not because he's black, nor because he's a Muslim, but because he is a soldier, a general. What you're seeing is a man who is in love with a woman who is perhaps, that love is something that he cherishes more dearly than someone else in a different situation because that's the only person who seems to understand him and not, and not look at him in the society as a brute or as a, or you know, as the whole place so far has told him it's, it's against nature. It's, it's foul, it's ridiculous that a white woman would love this black man. And again, I think hopefully that's what comes out is that it's because of the racism that exists in this world and the xenophobia that lives in this, that exists in this world that um, this change happens so quickly, mm. actually, as opposed to it being something specifically to do innately with that character. And and, I'll, and, and I mean, for me, I often think about the th- that scene as the moment where Iago successfully wrenches Othello away from the moral code that would stay his hand. Yes, exactly. And and I and, and and I think there's an element in here and, and, and you must 
I mean, you must contend with it in a really interesting way because because you are aware that that also this is a real moment of the triumph of patriarchy, isn't yes, it? Big time. It's mm-hmm. it and and that and that that sense that vein of patriarchy is so strong in Othello at every turn we're mm-hmm. we're up against it, mm-hmm. and in many ways it it, it it I know it makes me feel really mm-hmm. uncomfortable. There's mm-hmm. some really uncomfortable moments mm-hmm. um, where 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 you're like, yeah, we're dealing with race, and now we're dealing with with religious identity, and we're dealing with 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 global flows of, of, of commerce and war and human beings and capital, but we're also dealing with cultures that are incredibly patriarchal. I would even say, if we look at Barbancho's speech yeah. in the first third of the play, misogynist. Yes. No, for sure. How do you contend with misogyny and patriarchy? Well, so, so interesting. Um, I remember talking with um, Nora, who plays Desdemona, early on about Othello. And um, there was there was a moment that came up. We were talking about the wedding vows, about um, who says what first, you know, and um, that sort of led us on to thinking. Basically, we got to a question. It came around. It came around that I don't see in that moment. I didn't see Othello as a as a as a feminist. And there's and Nora's like, well, her Desdemona does does see Othello as a feminist, or she wouldn't be with him. Now, of course, you know, some people would argue that's not that's not that's not what's written or whatever, but. It's interesting that we are trying to portray, you know, a, a, a relationship that is as beautiful and as, you know, we want to be able to hopefully feel when, when that relationship is torn, is torn apart to see the potential it had. That actually, that's interesting, actually. You know, you can be, you know, how much could Othello be, as far as he knows, a feminist until something happens, you know what I mean? Of course. So so, so, so in, in regards to that conversation, we sort of compromise. It's actually maybe, you know, maybe he... he thinks he is or he is unto a certain point so of course ultimately he's not do you know what I mean but he isn't the stereotypical or the the box standard patriarch do you know what I mean he wouldn't for example in our version of play wouldn't police what Desdemona wears he wouldn't really care too much if Desdemona has loads of male friends um, he wouldn't care too much if Desdemona earned more money than him but what he does care about is what eventually happens of him being cuckolded and that patriarchy then comes out in, a, in an amazing sense that because, you know, the, to, once Othello's made his mind up to kill Desdemona, it's really apparent that when Amelia comes in and says, she's chased, she's chased, she shouldn't have killed her, that whole last scene happens in a world, in a very patriarchal world, because if it wasn't a patriarchal world, we wouldn't care why Othello did it. The fact is he did it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? The fact is that even if Iago did tell him all these things the fact is like the answer isn't to kill your wife yeah. do you know what I mean and that that is the thing that is very patriarchal and, mis- and, and misogynistic and that, about and it. that in some ways is an mm. interesting cross-cutting mm. um, theme mm. because at, at that point in a way is not that we leave race, religion or politics behind mm. but we recognize that race, religion and politics all has a strain mm. of patriarchy potentially even misogyny yes. through it yes. and and that 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 men Often in times of, of of crisis, gravitate to that yeah. to that patriarchy or that mm. that misogyny, mm. which which actually adds this other dimension to to, to the play, which mm-hmm. which I'm sure on top of everything else mm. that you're that you're contending with is another is another mm. thing to absolutely is another thing to contend with. Yeah. Um, in the last few minutes that we have, I I I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about the relationship between Othello and Iago. Mm-hmm. I mean, many people have talked about Othello as as being sort of misnamed. 
because the play often people will say is as much or more about Iago's machinations because Iago is the 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 mover mm-hmm. of events through his evil meddling and dabbling and scheming. Mm. Um, but there's a really interesting relationship in this production between your Othello and Mark's Iago. Something of the everyman in both of you. You're a general. He's he's clearly has position in Venetian society, but not high position. And yet there there's a really interesting relationship that that is built in in this in this really fascinating way from the very beginning mm. very brotherly mm. um and 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 you in particular the way your othello deals with iago is as a is as a brother mm. um talk us through a little bit about that relationship between the two characters well, no, i think you know um the the thing that's very apparent that for this Othello to, one thing that definitely needs to happen for this Othello to work is that Othello needs to trust Iago Othello needs to trust Iago and I think I'm still learning and I think we've still got a lot to find actually in a lot of parts of the plays but one part in particular is you know um, is you know in this version of the play where we're allowing a lot of contemporary um, ideas to see through is how can a young black man in this society who's gone through what he's gone through trust an old white man in this society, how? That's a, you know that's I mean? a really interesting question. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. there's nothing really, you know, that happens within the play that um, fosters that relationship. It's all previous stuff. There's a lot. There's a lot in the text. Do you know what I mean? Do you know, honest, 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 honest. Iago. That's all being said. So we know for some reason, Othello trusts Iago with his life, and that's really important. So with that, I think that's sort of for me personally is where I go with it. Is that I look at Iago and I have to trust him. I have to invest as much as I can into this character because if 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 Othello doesn't trust Iago, then these things cannot happen. So for me, I guess it's a, sort of as simple as, as as that, really. That you know, for the play to function, um, there needs to be a trust, and I've, and and, and that is that is a camaraderie, and of course, in terms of in soldiership, he says, you know, it's it's Iago that's been in the battlefield with him all his in all the battles he's, he's seen, um, and Iago has also talked mentioned about Iago has been there with him for the whole for throughout the whole um, time. So when Iago and Othello are on stage, up until the last few moments of the play, Othello sees Iago as the most trustworthy person he knows on this planet, and a, a man he can look for for guidance and truth and wisdom. Um, an honest man he is that hates the slime that sticks on filthy deeds. An honest, this honest creature doubtless sees and knows more, much more than he unfolds. Um, this fellow's of exceeding honesty and knows all quantities with a learned spirit of human dealings. He looks at Iago for this is a wise man who also knows Venice and Othello doesn't know Venice. So there's a part of that as well is that I have no choice actually to trust this man in, ter- in certain situations because he knows more than I do. This is where he comes from, not where and, I come and he's from. Gonna, he, he is continuously helping Othello's character navigate exactly uh, this, this, the, this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, stepping back from the play... Mm. Is Iago evil? Is Iago evil? <laughs> um, definitely. I don't know if there's any one person that I could say is completely evil, but he does very. He doesn't do one good thing in the whole play. Mm. He just he's completely evil. There's not one person in the play he's kind to, genuinely kind to. Uh, other than to, if he's kind to them, it's for a, a peculiar end. That includes his wife, um, and he 
bit by bit swallows everyone's life up. Um, and um, I guess it's good to know that, you know, his plan didn't completely come to, to, come to fruition because he, he didn't get away with it. Cashel didn't die. And we don't know if if he if he really wanted the media to really get caught up caught up in it, in his in his um in his plan. You are listening to the Othello Project, created by English Touring Theatre with support from Amul, a project of the Said Foundation. To keep up to date with ETT's work, visit www.ett.org.uk and sign up to their mailing list. Upcoming shows include Rules for Living by Sam Holcroft and The Weir by Connor McPherson, touring UK venues this autumn. And now for the conclusion of our podcast. I certainly leave the play with the strong sense that here is someone who is a product Absolutely. Of, of a society that is influenced by, by, by a kind of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And that even though he is not the beneficiary of the riches of Venice. He is an agent, ultimately, for what the dark heart of Venetian society represents. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And and that, I think, gives complexity to Iago, mm-hmm. because he's not evil intrinsically, but maybe he, too, is also a product no, I think I'm, of a I'm, society where, I imagine, he's had to fight. Absolutely, and I, and I think um, something really important, I hope that people get away from this, that Iago isn't just... Does it doesn't just do what he does because he just because of he he's not he's not an anomaly, do you know what I mean? In the sense of like he's not just some evil person who's came from an evil land just come to this place. He is a product of the society that comes and he is the the society that the, the Venetian society is responsible for the the production of people like Iago. And I hope you know there's loads of things that happen. You know I mean? even from people like you know it's, his name is talked about daily now, but people like Donald Trump are a product of the society, do you know what I mean? Whether, even though he's a person with loads of power and loads of riches, but even to the person who goes into a school and shoots it up, uh, to the person who drives a car up on Westminster, Westminster Bridge, Westminster Bridge, you know, all of those people are products of society. And I think we too, in our society, we're too quick to label these people as X, Y, Z, do you know what I mean? So someone might label that person as a terrorist or someone like this person as a as a psychopath. You might label Iago as a psychopath or sociopath, but actually labeling them then puts them aside and says, there's just something wrong with them that's aside from the society they live in. Actually, that's wrong. They are that way because of the their environment. And um, hopefully when people see Iago, you know, I don't think anyone should empathize with him, but people should look and say, we created that. Mm. We created that. The play now has finished its run in Bristol, yeah, which is why you're looking so relaxed. <laughs> uh, you're going to Exeter, and eventually you're coming to London, the, yeah. the heart of the East End at Wilton's Music Hall, which uh, which I'm incredibly excited yeah, about. Uh, as, as you said, you are, and, and and everyone involved in this production is. Um, Abe, when people come and watch this play, they're going to take a lot away with them. And I hope there's like really rich and heated and animated and passionate conversations uh, that happen between people who have seen this production. But I, but every actor must have an aspiration, mm. an aspiration for what the audience leaves. Mm. Um, as a last word, what's your aspiration for what you hope the audience takes away from your Othello and from this production of Othello? Um, I hope the audience can take away from it to know what it feels like to be othered. If you are 
white, to know what it feels like to be othered if you're a person of colour, to know what it feels like if your religion or your beliefs are what the status quo is, to know what it's like when it's not, when your religion is completely always discriminated against or, or blamed or used as a scapegoat, to know if you're a man, what it's like to be a woman in a world that um, is as patriarchal as this one is. Um, I think that would be my main wish, you know what I mean? And I hope that's happening and that those stories, those um, nar- those narratives are coming across and that those conversations are being had. But that, I think, would be my, my main hope for people to have some empathy and say, okay, cool, actually, you know what? I'm a bit privileged in this situation. Um, I can see that perhaps this is not that easy for this person in, in the world we live in. And also, as well, for those people who do who do know what it's like to feel othered, to... Well, I don't know. If, I don't know if the plague. <laughs> it doesn't give any sort of respite for anyone like that. But to see in Othello, um, although it, it ends horribly, to see in Othello some dignity, some pride, some something of the of the beauty of someone who has done so well up until the play's end to to piece together a life that has been ruined from birth till 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 the point um, that we see him. Amen to that. Yes. <laughs> uh, Abe, uh, thank you so much for thank this you. conversation. Thank you for your performance. Um, and and I, I thank you for your insight and, and, and not only for, for sharing your personal experience, but, but I think taking us into the process of what it means to play an iconic character like this. And if this, is, if this production uh, gives us any sense and reviewers seem to agree wholeheartedly that this production gives us something unique and you give us something unique. I'm sure the years to come, we're going to see a lot of awesome and amazing things from you. I hope so. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Othello Project, created by English Touring Theatre with support from Amal, a project of the Said Foundation. Special thanks to our guest this week, Abraham Popola, for sharing such an honest and soul-bearing meditation on playing Shakespeare's Moor. Special thanks also to Ellie Isherwood for recording and sound design, and to the incredible team at ETT for pulling this all together. Othello runs at Wilton's Music Hall, London, from 16th May to 3rd June. Tickets are available from wiltons.org.uk. Book soon to avoid disappointment. I've been your host, Abdul Rahman Malik. Next week, we're exploring the enduring and destructive role patriarchy and misogyny plays in shaping Othello's tragedy. We'll be joined by Nora Lopez-Holden, who plays Desdemona, Hayat Kamil, who plays Bianca, and assistant director Floriana Dezu. This week's and last week's podcast can be found on iTunes or your favorite Android podcast tool. You can visit www.ett.org uk for more information on this and other events in the othello project if you like what you've heard please leave us a review till next time